everybody. Welcome back for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is John Marinelli, and today we're joined by Dr. Ed Weaver to discuss obstructive sleep apnea in adults. Um, Dr. Weaver, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, John. Just for introduction's sake, I do want to mention that this is obviously a very large topic, um, and a lot of the subcomponents that we'll talk about today, like specific workup pieces such as drug-induced sleep endoscopy or specific surgical management options um, such as MMA, will be discussed in separate episodes, but we will touch on them here. Um, but I just say that to say that we will not go in-depth necessarily on each one of these different uh, avenues that are related to OSA in adults. But nevertheless, Dr. Weaver, let's just get started with disease presentation. So how do patients with obstructive sleep apnea um, present to your clinic? Well, uh, I think it's first worthwhile, John, just defining sleep apnea. And in simple terms, it's repeated choking in sleep. And uh, so symptoms related to that is how people present. And I would say by far and away, the most common symptom is snoring. Now, when we're seeing patients, they almost all snore. So we um, oftentimes are looking beyond that to start to tease out uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And so there's a host of other symptoms. You know, the choking, gasping in sleep itself, which defines the disorder, um, is one of the key symptoms, often resulting in recurrent awakenings. This all results in unrefreshing sleep for many patients. So that's a common symptom. Um, daytime fatigue and the effects of, of the poor sleep and impaired concentration. Those are common symptoms, but among uh, these other array of symptoms, um, daytime sleepiness is probably the other main hallmark symptom. So snoring and daytime sleepiness, as well as those other items. And I understand, I mean, it's a pretty common disorder. Isn't that the case? Yeah, it's quite common. You know, the epidemiologic data is being updated all the time, and, and current estimates suggest that well more than 5% of women and more well more than 10% of men uh, have significant sleep apnea. You know, and that's probably related to a few factors. One, the obesity epidemic. So as the population gains weight, that increases the risk of sleep apnea because that is one of the um, important risk factors. Another is just that we're way more sensitive to it, paying attention to it. So um, patients are being tested more for it and the testing has gotten more and more sensitive over the last two or three decades. So most people either have sleep apnea or know somebody who has sleep apnea. That's how common it is. And in terms of other associated risk factors or comorbidities, what are common ones you see in the patients that present to your clinic? Well, I think the biggest one is anatomy. And like snoring, it's such a prevalent issue within patients with sleep apnea. We almost look past it to tease out other factors. Um, obesity is a big one, but obesity affects sleep apnea probably mostly by affecting the anatomy. So when someone has excess body weight in their belly, they also have excess body weight in their neck. And, and some emerging data suggests excess body weight in their tongue in particular. And so um, that can directly affect the airway. Family history is important, but probably that's the genetics that is propagated through the family history is probably affecting the anatomy. That's probably the biggest factor there. So, um, so anatomy and its correlates are important. Um, age is important just because as people age, we think the laxity that naturally occurs in tissues uh, also increases the risk of having a collapse and obstructive sleep apnea. Those are kind of main, main risk factors, I would say. And from a pathophysiology perspective, what, what exactly is going on in obstructive sleep apnea that's leading to the sequelae that we often hear about? Well, uh, just like I mentioned with the risk factors, uh, anatomy is the biggie. There are other factors that can be at play, and each of these different etiologies, the term used is endotypes, lead to a similar clinical phenomenon, sleep apnea, which is the phenotype. Um, anatomy is top five on the list, and anatomy can affect the airway in a couple few different ways. An analogy that's often used is it's like the airway is like a room, and uh, if the room is too small, the little bit of collapse that naturally occurs when we fall asleep is enough to obstruct you. Or if the room has too much furniture in it, then there's not enough room and a little bit of collapse that naturally occurs also leaves too little room to breathe. In the last several years though, there are other factors that have, physiologic factors that have um, been better understood. And so uh, collapsibility of the tissues. So someone might have normal anatomy, but their muscles just collapse way more readily. There's a reflex 
that is naturally occurring when we're, uh, especially when we're awake, that naturally opens up our upper airway. So contracts muscles in the throat and the mouth. Um, the most important one being the genioglossus muscle, which is a muscle in the tongue that goes from the front of the mandible to the base of the tongue. When that's active, that pulls the tongue out of the way. There are others in the palate and other places in the pharynx. When we fall asleep, those reflexes are blunted. And in some, they're blunted more so. Uh, and that can lead to sleep apnea. And, and then two other factors quickly. One is ventilatory instability. And that just means uh, regulation of breathing um, can get out of whack. There's a concept called high loop gain, which is where the, uh, the regulation breathing is way too sensitive. And so it overshoots and then undershoots corrections for breathing perturbations. And, and that itself can lead to a form of sleep disorder breathing or sleep apnea. And then lastly, low arousal threshold. And that just means person wakes up too easily. And the reason that can impact sleep apnea is because having an awakening um, helps to find some of those breathing pauses. And if someone wakes up way too easily, then even a minor breathing pause will get counted as an awakening and disrupt sleep. So if someone wakes up way too easily, that also can, um, can cause it. So all four of those factors are discussed a lot these days, but anatomy is the big one. Uh, and the treatments are aimed at addressing the anatomy, whether it's surgical or non-surgical in various ways. And we'll, I'm sure, touch on that later. And so when you bring that all together in a patient, how does that end up leading to some of the long-term sequelae that we talk about, such as cardiovascular disease or things like that? That's a really important part of sleep apnea. Um, I would say there's, there's two effects of sleep apnea in large terms. One is the day-to-day -day effects that occur from disrupted sleep uh, and, and other challenges, in, inadequate sleep related to sleep apnea. And then the second is the long-term health implications that you just mentioned. And the long-term health implications are likely due to these physiologic perturbations. There's a fight or flight sympathetic discharge with each of these apneic episodes, um, which are recurring throughout the night in patients with sleep apnea. There's oxidative stress uh, from the changes in oxygen saturation. There's inflammatory response to all this and, and other factors. The repeated awakenings itself can cause a physiologic phenomena. And so, Long term, that translates into cardiovascular disease being the one condition that's gotten the most attention, and that's hypertension, myocardial infarction, cerebrovascular disease, stroke, arrhythmia, congestive heart failure. But really, this disorder affects every organ because when your oxygen level is fluctuating repeatedly every night over the course of years or decades, um, everything's affected. So, for example, recently um, in the last 10 years, dementia and cognitive effects, permanent cognitive effects of sleep apnea uh, are becoming more apparent. Endocrine disorders, glucose intolerance, uh, impotence, even glaucoma is related to sleep apnea, can be exacerbated by sleep apnea, and, and cancer. And the whole intermittent hypoxia with sleep apnea um, sets up a state that puts a person at risk of cancer, you know, and, and a bunch of others, including death. People with sleep apnea that's untreated, especially when it's severe, uh, have shorter lifespans. And when it's treated, they have longer lifespans. So that's a really important part of the impact of sleep apnea, these long-term health sequelae. And when you're seeing a patient in clinic, um, besides obstructive sleep apnea, what are the other differential considerations that are important to keep in mind? You know, I think this is um, a topic that doesn't get enough attention among otolaryngologists. And the reason it's important is because these other conditions can mimic sleep apnea in terms of some of the symptoms. So I think of it in terms of categories of other disorders. One big important category is other forms of sleep disorder breathing, meaning other forms of breathing problems during sleep that aren't sleep apnea. Primary snoring is one. So I mentioned earlier, snoring is the most common symptom. And, and so, you know, a patient presents with a complaint of snoring, they might just have snoring and not have sleep apnea. However, if we just pay attention to the snoring, we might be missing sleep apnea. There's a condition called upper airway resistance syndrome, which is sort of like a pre-sleep apnea. It's, it's, it's breathing pauses that don't meet criteria for sleep apnea, but has the symptoms of sleep apnea. On the other end of the spectrum, is uh, extreme end of the spectrum, is uh, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, where in addition to really severe sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, the patients have other physiologic effects that linger beyond the sleep period, hypercarbia and, and other problems. And then there's central sleep apnea, which is a completely different disorder altogether, which is where it's not obstruction keeping a person from breathing. It's just the brain not triggering breaths. 
that's rare, true central sleep apnea, but it's important to keep in mind. So, so other breathing disorders, but, but there's a whole host of other sleep disorders that can make a person tired or fatigued or sleepy. And the most common one by far, insufficient sleep. Insufficient sleep has its own ICD-10 code, insufficient sleep disorder. So most people don't get enough sleep. So that's a that's an important one to keep in mind because if a person just isn't sleeping enough and they're only complaining of sleepiness, probably they just need more sleep. Insomnia, um, even depression, which can be associated with sleep apnea, but itself can lead to its own fatigue. Um, sleep timing disorders like delayed sleep phase syndrome, which I think was touched on a bit in one of the other podcasts on uh, sleep physiology. And so um, there's a whole host of other sleep disorders, but those are ones that uh, I'm asking about in almost every patient visit on sleep apnea. And transitioning to um, workup now, so we talked a little bit about how patients present in terms of how that might relate to taking a history, but um, anything else in terms of patient history that's important to get an idea of when you're seeing these patients in clinic? Yeah, I would say there's um, two important notes on that. One is, just like we learn uh, when we first start taking clinical histories in medical school, Understanding the patient's chief concern is really important. And for sleep apnea, it's really important because there's so many potential symptoms. Um, we want to make sure we're addressing what's of concern to the patient. So if the patient's only concern is snoring and they don't have any other symptoms, that might flavor how we um, recommend a treatment. If, on the other hand, their only concern is long-term health implications and they have no symptoms, it also might affect what we recommend in a different way. So, so, so chief concern. Uh, and then the second is um, we try to quantify some of these symptoms. And I would say the most common tool to quantify one of the symptoms is um, sleepiness, the Epworth sleepiness scale. Um, it's widely, widely used clinically as well as in research. It's simple. It's eight questions. It's validated to assess sleepiness in a variety of conditions. And, uh, you know, scoring is standardized. Um, it's a zero to 24 scale. Zero to five is actually not sleepy enough. That's that's super normal Uh alertness and commonly seen in insomnia. 5 to 10 is normal. 10 to 16 is excessive sleepiness. And then 17 to 24 is severe excessive sleepiness. And when you get to the extreme end of that spectrum, 20 to 24, it's very, very uh, sleepy. So that's one that's commonly used in, in, in sleep apnea circles. Everyone understands that instrument. So that's one I, I would encourage people to, to use to quantify uh, the symptoms. And what about physical exam? What are the key features you like to elucidate in clinic with the physical exam? The anatomy is the big one, John, but let me step back from that and say it depends on what our goal is. So if the patient's coming to us and has not been diagnosed with sleep apnea and we're trying to assess the risk for sleep apnea, um, obesity, uh, especially neck circumference um, are important factors. So greater than 17 inches or greater than 15.5 inches in females are known to elevate risk of sleep apnea, but otherwise it's the anatomy. And so when I'm seeing patients who I know have sleep apnea and I'm being consulted to treat the sleep apnea, I'm really assessing the anatomy for what factors are contributing to the sleep apnea. Broadly, from first steps in the in the exam, um, I just look at their facial skeleton. You know, if they've got a small lower jaw, for example, that's either small or set back, that puts them at risk because it makes the room small, so to speak. Um, you know, and then just going top to bottom, the nose, I'm looking at the septum and the turbinates and, and the nasal valve for static or dynamic um, collapse. In the mouth, the soft palate gets a lot of attention. Uh, its position, you know, is it forward? Is it backwards? Its laxity, its length or, or uh, shape of the palate, the size of the uvula. Uh, tonsils, of course, are important um, in kids in particular, but even in adults, we pay attention to that because when the patient has big tonsils, uh, that's a uh, correctable uh, anatomic factor that could be affecting the sleep apnea. We look at the tongue. Um, how big is the tongue for the oral cavity? Are there indentations on the side of the tongue, so-called scalloping of the tongue uh, from the teeth? Um, is the tongue sitting backwards? Is it sitting high and taking up space? And then there's combinations or interactions of the anatomy, especially in the mouth. So the modified malpotty score is a commonly used metric that's with the tongue sitting in normal position as opposed to the tongue sticking out like the anesthesiologists use. The tongue in normal position and scoring how open it is, it's a score of one to four. Going a layer deeper than that, there's something called the Friedman scale, which uses that modified malpotty score combined with tonsil size, combined with body mass index. And that's been shown when it's very favorable anatomy 
to predict good results with one of the main surgical treatments, the uvulopatophrenoplasty. Unfortunately, that particular metric isn't real useful because um, there's a big, big middle ground where it's not obvious, simple anatomy, and um, and the predictive ability is less uh, useful. But it's one that's talked about a lot. And then lastly, looking uh, at the lower pharynx, so the tongue base, lingual tonsils, epiglottis, either with a mirror or with uh, with an endoscope. And circling back to that Friedman scale idea, so when you say that there's a large group in the middle and that the small group that may favor U-triple-P's, like surgical success, can you just go into that a little bit further for us? What type of patient, what does it mean to have a favorable Friedman stage that would predict good success with the U-triple-P? So uh, large tonsils, small tongue, not obese. That's stage one Friedman, and they have 80% success with UPPP. And, and realize UPPP includes a tonsillectomy. Some would even argue maybe just a tonsillectomy would be all that person would need. Patients with big tonsils and no other problems, they do really well with tonsillectomy in adults, just like with kids. We just don't see it as commonly in adults. So that's only about, in, in Friedman's own studies, that was 8% of patients. Um, the middle ground is someone with big tonsils, but also other problems like a big tongue, you know, or some obesity, uh, or they have small tonsils, and a small tongue, and it's not clear what the anatomy problem is. That's the middle ground. And that's where, you know, tonsillectomy alone or UPPP alone is uh, commonly not adequate to treat the sleep apnea. And that's stage two. And then stage three is, um, you know, the patients who have bad anatomy for a UPPP, they have small tonsils, big tongue, and or, and or are really obese. In those cases, UPP alone has a very low chance of um, adequately correcting the sleep apnea. So when a patient has big tonsils, and that's the only problem, Friedman is suggests that they'll do well, and and there are other data that doesn't that don't even use Friedman to suggest those patients do well with surgery, uh, aimed at the tonsils and or the palate. And the other thing is, you mentioned endoscopy. Are you taking a flexible scope to these patients in clinic? I don't, but um, I think most people do. When I do. Um, I'm mainly trying to assess the dynamic collapse. I feel like I can get a good exam of the static anatomy without the scope in most cases. So what do I mean by dynamic collapse? Uh, Not just is the palate in a vulnerable position, but does it in fact collapse and obstruct the airway or does the tongue collapse? Now, this is controversial. How do you get the airway to collapse when the person's awake and their muscles aren't relaxed in the same way as they are when they're asleep? There's a couple maneuvers to do uh, that can help with that. One is just lay the person down. And you might see the tongue, for example, collapse a lot of the way, if not all the way. The person could still breathe even with a small airway and their reflexes are holding it open enough so they can breathe fine. But then it really raises the suspicion that when they fall asleep, that last little bit of collapse is going to be enough to cut off their airway. Uh, another maneuver is um, something called the hypotonic maneuver. And that is have the person take a large breath in and then exhale all the way. And not just exhale all the way to comfort, but exhale all the way to completely eliminate air in their lungs. And at that very end expiration, there's a reflex that relaxes the pharyngeal musculature. And um, so you can somewhat mimic what's happening during sleep with this hypotonic maneuver and, and then pay attention to what happens in that moment when they're at an exhalation. And if you see collapse, those are suspicious sites as well. So why don't I use this in clinic? Um, Because I'm almost always doing a sleep endoscopy, which I'm sure we will touch on in a moment, um, which is uh, another form of endoscopy, but done under sedation in a a monitored setting. Yeah, I think maybe let's just transition to that now. When are you getting drug-induced sleep endoscopy? So this is also variable from, from surgeon to surgeon. I do it on pretty much every case I'm operating on. Uh, just to gain the information, even if I know exactly what I'm going to do for surgery. So for example, let's say the patient has a nasal issue, and that's really the only issue I'm treating. The sleep endoscopy is not real relevant to the nose, um, but I'll do a sleep endoscopy to assess the rest of the airway just to gain the insight or information in case whatever strategy we had in mind with the nasal treatment alone, you know, possibly with another device treatment or something, um, I, I have a better understanding of what's going on. If I'm planning pharyngeal surgery, I usually have a pretty clear plan in mind from my anatomy exam, but I'll be ready to tailor it and uh, personalize it um, based on the sleep endoscopy. 
If I'm not clear on what all might be involved, I might leave a few options open in the surgical plan uh, with, with the patient, depending on what I saw on sleep, see on sleep endoscopy. So that's one approach. Another approach is doing the sleep endoscopy as its own standalone procedure. I don't do that. I don't really have the facilities to do that. But some surgeons will um, evaluate a patient in clinic and then schedule a sleep endoscopy, do that as its own outpatient standalone procedure and then regroup with the patient to formulate um, surgical plan uh, based on the sleep endoscopy. And then some, some people don't do sleep endoscopy at all. Uh, in Australia, it's not um, used very much. It had been in the past. They felt it wasn't a high enough yield. And so um, my Australian colleagues um, rarely use sleep endoscopy, at least a lot of them rarely use sleep endoscopy. So um, it's one of the controversial topics. A lot of us think it has an important role, but uh, that exact role is still being defined. And, and that's why you have this variability in how it's used. Any role for imaging here, like CT or MRI or that sort of thing? Not in the diagnosis or workup. I would say just in surgical planning. So certain surgeries warrant uh, uh, x-rays, CT scans, uh, such as skeletal surgery, but otherwise not routinely used. Uh, Cephalometrics had been used in the past, and there's risk factors associated with certain cephalometric findings. So those are lateral skeletal, facial skeletal x-rays and uh, something called a Panorex X-ray, it's of the jaw, but but um, honestly, we don't need those to diagnose sleep apnea. You really need a sleep test to diagnose the sleep apnea, so the X-rays don't really serve that role. So the part of the workup is um, certainly before doing invasive treatment is uh, sleep testing of some kind to document the sleep apnea and assess the severity of the sleep apnea. Yeah, and you know, I, we cover in-depth discussion of interpreting a sleep study in another episode, but I think it's worth mentioning, and especially in terms of the formal diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, what is the formal diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea? So I'd mentioned the working definition earlier of repeated choking or repeated upper airway obstructions during sleep. How that's operationalized is on a sleep test that's measuring breathing and a whole host of other factors, uh, including sleep and a formal polysomnography. If the person has five or more obstructions per hour of sleep, that's the threshold to define sleep apnea. And then what uh, defines a, an obstruction? It can be either complete obstructions, those are apneas, or partial obstructions with ramifications. Those are called hypopneas and include, the ramifications might be awakenings or might be um, oxygen drops. So five or more per hour of those define sleep apnea. Now, there's this concept of uh, obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, and that is uh, that physiologic abnormality of sleep apnea with symptoms. The syndrome is defined as occurring with symptoms. So patients who have five or more episodes with symptoms, we consider that an important degree of sleep apnea because of the symptoms. If it's 15 or more, it's important whether or not they have symptoms. And that's because with 15 or more, the data, epidemiologic data suggests the person is at a measurable increased risk of the health implications we discussed earlier, like cardiovascular disease. So long answer to a short question, but um, five breathing pauses per hour with symptoms or 15 or more breathing pauses per hour warrant attention. And how do we define mild, moderate, and severe? So mild is um, that lower end of the spectrum where they have five to 15 breathing pauses per hour, um, moderate 15 to 30, and severe greater than 30. The epidemiologic data oftentimes breaks down into these categories. And so you'll hear a lot, uh, severe sleep apnea has increased risks. Moderate has a little bit increased risk. Mild appears not to. Um, But it's important to understand that nothing magical happens between the cutoff of 15 and 16 from mild to moderate. Uh, 16 is the same disease as 15. Those are constructs that we've created to just categorize. So I'll oftentimes refer to a patient who has an apnea apopnea index of 14, 15, or 16 as mild to moderate because it's right on that bridge. The other thing just related to this mild, moderate, severe idea, how do um, oxygen saturations play into this? That's, that's a really important point because the flow limitations of obstructive sleep apnea appear to be of less importance than the fluctuation in oxygen levels. Now, people who have apneas, complete obstructions usually have some fluctuation in oxygen levels. But people with hypopneas, the partial obstructions and arousals may have no fluctuations in oxygen levels. It's the fluctuation in oxygen levels that um, appear to be the most prominent risk factor for long-term health implications 
among the factors we measure. Another measure on oxygen is how much time or what percent of the sleep time does a patient spend with an abnormally low level. And that also is predictive of long-term health issues, although only when it gets into the moderate and severe range, which, which tends to be less common than the fluctuation uh, abnormalities. Um, so those I pay very close attention to. In fact, I often will tell uh, people in lectures or, or trainees, the single most important measure on the sleep test, in my opinion, is the oxygen desaturation index. It's not the apnea index or the apnea index. It's the oxygen desaturation index. If we're going to look at a single measure. In reality, we look at a whole host of measures, the ones we mentioned here and, and a bunch of others, um, to get a gestalt on how bad the sleep apnea is. What, what would you say to a trainee in terms of um, oxygen desaturation index? What starts to kind of make you worried? Similar cutoffs to the apnea apnea index, but with the desaturations. Um, so 15 or more per hour um, uh, suggests increased risk of the long-term health implications. And I'll point out uh, now, I mentioned earlier two main issues with sleep apnea, these long-term health implications and, and then day-to-day -day effects, symptoms and, and functional effects. It turns out the sleep test does predict the long-term health implications, and that's what we're focusing on right now. It turns out the sleep test tells us nothing about symptoms among patients who present for sleep apnea. So someone might have very mild sleep apnea and very severe symptoms, very severe sleepiness, very severe other symptoms or vice versa. They might have very severe sleep apnea and almost no symptoms. And so we don't use a sleep test at all to um, assess symptoms. We ask about the symptoms and the effect, the day-to-day -day effects directly. Um, but we do use it to anticipate the health in, in implications. And the desaturation index, I think, is the single most important measure, especially if it's 15 or more. And even more especially if it's 4% desaturations rather than just 3% desaturations. And so this is, this is a whole rabbit hole we could get down because um, there's a lot of debate on how we should even be looking at all these multitudes of parameters. But um, to, to break it down into a nutshell, so to speak, um, I think the 4% desaturation index is probably the single most important um, measure. So now that we've covered presentation, pathophysiology, workup, and diagnosis, I just want to transition to treatment. Um, how should we think about medical management in the context of obstructive sleep apnea? One of the gratifying parts about sleep apnea is there's multiple ways to treat it and multiple specialists to engage in the treatment of it. Um, when I see a patient, the first thing I do is try to decide whether treating the sleep apnea is worthwhile, especially if they have other comorbidities that might be responsible for their symptoms. So, um, so kind of taking that step back and really deciding whether treatment's even warranted, uh, because we sometimes fall in a, into a trap where the patient had a sleep test, they have a diagnosis of sleep apnea, and we forget everything else that might be contributing to their symptoms. Um, so that's an important first part. Related to that is sometimes my recommendation is no treatment at all. Just leave the sleep apnea alone because it's not part of the problem for that given person's um, concerns. That's that happens sometimes. Um, I'm going to go kind of from least invasive to most invasive. So, so least invasive would be would be no treatment at all. Next is behavioral modifications. We call that sleep hygiene, having a regular sleep schedule, getting enough sleep. I mentioned earlier, insufficient sleep is the most common cause of sleepiness. If that's the main issue, just get enough sleep. Easier said than done, maybe, but um, but at least we can understand how to treat it. And avoiding sedatives like alcohol or medications because those can exacerbate sleep apnea. I would say the next step up from there, um, weight loss, um, weight, excess body weight is, uh, uh, one of the risk factors for sleep apnea. And so weight loss can help treat sleep apnea. The problem is sustained substantial weight loss is really, really difficult. Um, and I, I don't recall ever seeing a patient who had a weight problem and I was seeing them for sleep apnea who had to not already tried to lose weight. And most of the time, many, many times. So um, I talk about it, but I don't withhold other treatments while waiting for weight loss. Now, weight loss might include an invasive treatment, surgical weight loss, and that, that can play an important role in the very obese patients. Next up, positional therapy. For some people, sleep position really dictates their sleep apnea. They only have sleep apnea when they are on their back, and they have very little or no sleep apnea when they're off their back. 
So there's a whole host of strategies to help a person stay off their back when they're sleeping. Medications. A lot of medications have been investigated. They don't really have a role in treating sleep apnea uh, directly, uh, with one potential exception that's on the horizon, that is a hypnotic agent or a sleep agent to help the patient with low arousal thresholds. So who we think their sleep apnea is really due to they wake up too easily, um, but those are rare. Stimulant medications are used sometimes for patients with sleep apnea to help fight the sleepiness once their sleep apnea is treated and if they have residual sleepiness, which can happen. So say a person uh, has received a treatment, it's fully controlled the, the breathing problem, but they still have sleepiness, um, then, then we might give them a, an alerting agent. Uh, modafinil um, being the commonly one used, it's actually FDA approved for this particular indication. Um, those are the main roles for medications, as well as treating other comorbidities. So for, for example, if someone has gastroesophageal reflux disease, we'll treat them potentially with uh, medications. And then we get into the big three treatments. CPAP is uh, the gold standard. Um, I can touch more on that. Mandibular advancement devices that position the, the, the mandible forward in some patients works, work really well. I can get into more detail on that if desired. And then surgery. And that's what I do. And that's what otolaryngologist's main role in treating sleep apnea is. Uh, and surgery is a large topic itself. Um, those are the three main treatments for, for sleep apnea. Maybe we could just start with the mandibular advancement devices. Um, what patients are, are good ones that might benefit from that? The literature suggests that patients with milder sleep apnea are more likely to do well with an oral appliance device or a mandibular advancement device. Um, but it's important to understand there's a little bit of a fallacy built in there. And that is the outcome being assessed in those studies is milder sleep apnea. So if you start with milder sleep apnea, you're more likely to get to milder sleep apnea. So there's a little bit of a circular argument. Same has been used for surgery. We now have expanded our horizon or our view of what we look out for outcomes. And we don't just look at the apnea hypopnea index. We look at symptoms and day-to-day -day effects, the day-to-day -day effects of sleep apnea and long-term health. So I think there's a more personalized, um, specific approach to assessing a good candidate. Um, they have to have adequate teeth because the oral appliance device anchors to the teeth. And more specifically, ideally, at least one molar in each quadrant. So one upper left, one upper right, one lower left, one lower right, one or more in each of those quadrants uh, to adequately anchor. There are exceptions or ways, but you know, really specialized um, orthodontists and sleep dentists can fashion uh, oral appliances um, when they're not ideal candidates, but it's, it's challenging. The second is um, something we as oralologists can easily uh, examine is a uh, protrusive capacity. That means, can the person stick their lower jaw forward? Some people just can't stick it forward very far at all. And in those cases, a uh, medieval advancement device is unlikely to be helpful. And then I'd say the third um, favorable feature is a person with um, an overbite. So class two malocclusion, meaning the lower jaw is set back from the upper jaw. If they have adequate uh, protrusive capacity, the effects of the oral appliance, one of the side effects is that it can move the teeth. And in those people, it can move the teeth and actually improve their bite. So the adverse effect of teeth movement might actually be a favorable side effect. And so those people tend to be the very best candidates. But you know what? I, I think about mandibular advancement device in, in almost all patients as an option to at least consider. Because even if, even if they're not ideal candidates, it might mitigate their sleep apnea and especially for a person who just doesn't tolerate or is not a good candidate for any other treatment, that's something that we should definitely have in our toolbox to consider. And the process there is basically consult a, uh, a dentist who, who fashions these devices and manages them. Some otolaryngologists will do this um, and are capable of doing this, um, but usually it's done by a dentist who, um, who has experience with these uh, sleep devices. Maybe now we could transition to the gold standard therapy, positive airway pressure. Can you touch on that next, please? Yeah, that's a whole lecture uh, discussion, conversation in and of itself. Um, but I think it's important for otolaryngologists to be um, able to discuss these this topic with patients because most of the patients, um, adult patients, uh, either will have tried it or should try it. So what is uh, CPAP? It's a continuous positive airway pressure. And conceptually, it's simple. It's, it's something that's holding air pressure in the upper airway, the pharynx, via the nose or via the nose and mouth. 
and that air pressure keeps the tissues from collapsing. That's the concept. There's a variety of different types of devices that all achieve that goal. Um, continuous positive airway pressure is a fixed pressure based on uh, settings um, that are determined on testing or other ways. Um, an auto-adjusting PAP device uh, does just that. It adjusts the pressure on the fly uh, to increase or decrease depending on whether it detects reduction in breathing or airflow. And um, each device has a detection mechanism built in. Uh, bi-level positive airway pressure, commonly known as BiPAP, um, is fixed pressure, but it's a different pressure breathing in than it is out. So it detects when the person's breathing in versus out and adjusts the pressure uh, to a lower level when breathing out. And that's used in particular for patients who experience extreme discomfort with exhaling while trying to sleep. They feel like they're suffocating. And typically it's in patients who have um, require high pressures to treat the sleep apnea. Uh, sometimes the bi-level will alleviate that uh, discomfort. And there's even something called BiPAP adaptive servo ventilation, ASV. And that's for patients who don't just have obstructive sleep apnea, but also have an element of central sleep apnea. And it's, it's almost like a mini ventilator, non-invasive ventilator. It'll actually detect if the person's um, not breathing and, and give a breath, not just positive pressure, but actually um, uh, give a breath. So um, I don't manage any of these, even though I am board subcertified in sleep medicine. Um, I leave that to my sleep medicine colleagues because within each of those categories, there's a whole bunch of other tools and adjustments and setups that um, can um, be used in various specific circumstances. But if a patient comes to a surgeon and has tried one pressure and has tried it for one week and has had no adjustments or no other consideration of other devices, to me, that's a sign that they may not have had an adequate trial of CPAP because CPAP notoriously requires troubleshooting to achieve um, optimal co comfort and effect. So, um, so that's why it's important to, to have some understanding about these other, um, or these various types of CPAP devices. How effective is CPAP in terms of, you know, we talked about some of those long-term sequelae. Does it mitigate that substantially or what, what does the data say about that? John, can I put on my clinical epidemiologist hat for a second? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a term called efficacy and a term called effectiveness. Efficacy is how well a treatment works under controlled ideal conditions, say in the laboratory, uh, or uh, in direct observation or in a trial, for example. CPAP has high efficacy, meaning if the person is wearing it through the night and it's set up well, it works great to treat sleep apnea. You can obliterate sleep apnea. Uh, and it's fascinating to watch this while a person's getting a sleep test who has really severe sleep apnea and then you put a CPAP on them and when it's you know set optimally, the sleep apnea disappears. It's, you know, it's profound to watch. However, Many patients have trouble achieving that ideal situation and, and, and gaining the efficacy. Um, so this concept of effectiveness is how well it works in the real world. And the big issue with CPAP is it's hard to use for a lot of patients. And so they use it part of the night or only some nights or not at all. And then it's not having the effect. So when it's working, when it's, when it's being used, it does really well in controlling the breathing problems, the physiology problems. It does quite well in controlling the symptoms. It controls snoring. It oftentimes improves sleepiness and, and other day-to-day uh, -day effects of sleep apnea. And it improves long-term health. Now, that last statement's a little bit controversial because there's been some trials that suggest it does not improve long-term health. However, those are under certain specific circumstances where the CPAP um, uh, isn't the optimal mode of treatment. And I think there's so much evidence that suggests it improves long-term health um, in general that, um, that yeah, we rely on it uh, for that effect as well. So, so very efficacious, effectiveness, about 50%, meaning about half the people do quite well with it, about half the people don't. How much do you need to be using it in order to achieve those benefits? In other words, what is adequate use? Uh, that's one of the holy grails in the field of how much is enough. The short answer that we use is four hours per night on five nights per week, which is 70% of the nights. And that's the standard used by insurance companies to define adequate use. 
that they will continue to cover the device, actually buy the device for the patient. So the patient has to demonstrate that much use over a 30-day period in order for insurance to pay for the device. And there's some epidemiologic data to suggest that that cutoff um, predicts some measurable benefit of the PAP. It gets complicated in that the more you use it, the bigger the effect. So five hours a night is better than four, four is better than three. The number of nights used is also a dose response. The more you use it, the better. And it depends on what outcome you're measuring. So some outcomes might only require four hours a night to achieve whatever effect you're going to get with the CPAP. Some might require seven hours per night. And so we are in our infancy in understanding all these nuances of the use of the device and the outcomes. For practical reasons, we use four hours a night, five nights a week as a cutoff, because then the patient, if they don't achieve that, um, we, we pretty much consider them not adequately treated and, and it's really worth looking at other treatment options. And lastly, any important contraindications to keep in mind for CPAP use? Or APAP use? Rare. As my colleague Tucker Woodson, who's uh, one of the major figures in sleep surgery, often says is, the only way you can hurt yourself with a CPAP is if you drop it on your foot. That's not entirely true, but it's 99% true. Um, the rare circumstances where it's really contraindicated is, um, well, well, one is if there's intolerable side effects. Um, those are common. But short of that, it's skull base. Um, defects. So if a person has a CSF leak, there's a risk of creating pneumocephaly by putting extra positive pressure um, in the upper airway, in the nose. Um, if they have lung problems, sometimes the CPAP is contraindicated. Um, so, so it's rare situations where it's contraindicated. Now, patients having difficulty with the device such that, um, for example, some patients will get recurrent sinusitis when they wear the device, or they'll get uh, air leaking out of the mass that causes a lot of symptoms or even air leaking through the nasal lacrimal duct if they have a patent nasal lacrimal duct um, into the eye uh, or aerophagia, which, is, which means uh, too much air going into the stomach, which can be extremely uncomfortable uh, and disruptive to a person throughout the whole day. Um, uh, those are you know relative contraindications if they can't be addressed with troubleshooting. And now transitioning to surgical management, um, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, We'll cover some of these areas in much more detail in different episodes, but could you just talk a little bit about surgical management and give us an overview of how to think about that? Yeah, there's there's three main roles um, for surgery in the treatment of sleep apnea. One role is as an adjunct to those other treatments, say CPAP or oral appliance therapy. Um, and that is the goal of the surgery is to facilitate those devices. The goal of the therapy, the surgery is not to treat the sleep apnea per se. So the most common scenario for that is nasal surgery. And, and in fact, that's very common. We do a lot of this to facilitate CPAPs or oral appliance therapies um, uh, because the nose is obstructing, compromising the patient's ability to tolerate it or the effectiveness of those devices. Um, but there are other surgeries too. I, I'll do tonsillectomy in patients who have really big tonsils, but have a whole bunch of other issues contributing, contributing to the sleep apnea. And my goal is really to lower the pressure requirement on the CPAP because the big tonsils are just making the CPAP work too hard. Um, so that's one role, adjunctive treatment. A second is as a primary therapy, meaning the patient hasn't had any other treatment for sleep apnea and we're using surgery as the main mode of treatment. That's rare in adults, but the circumstance is the one we touched on earlier when we were talking about the Friedman staging. And that is a young person who's not obese, who has pretty much normal anatomy, except very large tonsils. Those patients have well over 50% chance of eliminating sleep apnea and 80 to 90% chance of making the sleep apnea trivial and no longer requiring treatment. And even if they do have residual sleep apnea after that, having those big tonsils out of the way will facilitate CPAP or other therapies like I just mentioned. So, so that's a situation where I would be thinking about primary surgery as primary therapy. And then the third role for surgery, and this is the one that people think about when they think about sleep surgery, is a salvage for the patient who was not able to tolerate or use CPAP for whatever reason. Uh, may or may not have considered oral appliance device therapy, uh, depending on um, their personal situation, their anatomy, and so forth. Um, so that salvage role 
for surgery is the one we think of most. And part of the value of thinking, breaking it down into these roles is um, we have different goals for each of these roles. So the goal for the adjective treatment is not to treat the sleep apnea. The goal is to facilitate the other treatment for sleep apnea. The goal for the primary therapy is to eliminate sleep apnea, and we use the other therapies as salvage. And the goal of salvage therapy, while ideally is to eliminate the sleep apnea, that's usually not realistic. You got to realize these are patients who failed other therapies. Um, it's really to improve the sleep apnea enough to, such that it's worthwhile. So getting them to the mild range and controlled symptoms, even if not eliminated, um, most of us who do sleep surgery would consider that um, perfectly adequate. In terms of what procedures are used, boy, there's a whole host, but I'll summarize them by saying it's addressing the abnormal anatomy we see on the exam. And that um, illustrates the importance of the exam um, and, and in particular the specific anatomies we might see on the exam that warrant therapy. So how would you decide when to do which procedures? There's um, a whole host of procedures to use, John. So that's, um, that's part of the art of uh, sleep surgery. Um, but I think of it in two broad categories um, of procedures. One are site-specific procedures. And so, um, as I was mentioning earlier, um, procedures to address very specific anatomic abnormalities. You know, big tonsils remove the tonsils. Um, and then the second broad category are what I call global airway procedures, meaning they address multiple areas of the upper airway at once. Um, so let me touch on site-specific procedures because I think that's uh, that category is the more commonly used surgical treatment for sleep apnea. So mentioned nasal obstruction, nasal surgeries, and that might be turbinate reduction, septoplasties, a whole host of um, functional septorhinoplasties. You know, the most common one, though, I would say is um, surgery of the palate uh, and velopharynx. So that's um, the uvulopalatopharyngoplasty and modifications of the uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. And there's, there's a couple key concepts, I think, to understand about that uh, operation. One is it's not one operation. And the analogy um, that I think illustrates that is it's like saying rhinoplasty. When we say rhinoplasty, it's not one technique. There are a whole host of things one might do under the rubric of rhinoplasty to address a person's nasal deformity or airway problems. Likewise, with UPPP, there's a whole host of things we might do to address a person's airway or collapsibility problem. So if they have a big uvula, you might trim the uvula. We usually try to preserve the uvula uh, if it's not big. Um, if they have big tonsils or any tonsils, we tend to remove them. If they get collapsed front to back, we might do uh, versions of the procedure that stabilize the palate from collapsing or help position it forward. If they get collapsed from the sides, the palatopharyngeus muscle, which is the large muscle along the side of the uh, oropharynx, um, there are procedures to reorient that muscle. And, and I won't go into the technical details of all the names of these procedures, but it's really important to understand that the, the UPP operation is a reconstructive procedure that's directed at the problems that one observes um, in that part of the anatomy. That's in contrast to old versions of UPPP, which was excisional. We'd literally take a bovie and cut off part of the palate and uvula and just oversew it. And while that can help sleep apnea, it has a lot more side effects and doesn't help as much as these newer techniques. And then moving on from there, um, if there's big lingual tonsils, remove those. If the tongue is big or collapsing, we can do things to reduce the tongue, whether it's uh, with a robotic surgery or even directly or, um, or ablation techniques. Um, we can advance the tongue with certain techniques like genoglossus advancement or hyoid suspension that use anchor points, skeletal anchor points to help pull these structures forward. Um, we can even do direct surgery on the epiglottis or the retinoids if those are collapsing. So, so there's a whole array of procedures, and oftentimes it's a combination that uh, dictate um, what might be included. Oftentimes these are staged. We'll do what we think is affecting uh, the sleep apnea, uh, see what happens. If it's not enough, go on and do more, uh, especially because sometimes a secondary set of obstruction may appear only after the first primary set of obstruction is addressed. Moving on to the global airway procedures, there's four main ones. Maxillomandibular advancement or jaw advancement, where you move the upper jaw and the lower jaw forward. It's a form of orthognathic surgery. Technically, it's telenathic surgery. Um, that's often done by oral maxillofacial surgeons. Um, there are a handful of otolaryngologists who do that, who've um, uh, done the training for it. Um, that can be a really, really um, effective treatment. 
But even it doesn't cure sleep apnea in most cases, but it does tend to really improve sleep apnea. It's a major undertaking. Um, and so most patients don't elect to go ahead with that surgery, but it's, it's definitely uh, one of the options, especially in someone who has a, a maxillofacial deficit on exam. One that's gaining a lot of popularity uh, in the last 10 years is hypoglossal nerve stimulator. Um, I think that you're going to have a whole separate session on that. Uh, one of the really exciting things about that therapy is um, that it has a physiologic effect rather than an anatomic effect. It counters the tongue collapse and potentially powder collapse by activating motor neuron, the hypoglossal nerve, to kind of recreate that reflex that would occur when you're awake. Um, so there's a lot of excitement about that treatment. It's important to understand that so far, the main studies in it have been in highly selected patients. So um, as more experience is gained and more studies come out um, to generalize uh, what all um, patient situations it would be useful for, um, I think um, its role will be better defined. Tracheotomy has an important role, although it's rarely applied. And that's typically when a patient has really bad sleep apnea and has critical other comorbidities that um, make the other treatments not real viable. And then lastly, bariatric surgery. Um, you know, major weight loss we think has a diffuse effect in the airway, maybe mostly on the tongue, but there are other parts of the airway where excess body weight might uh, impact uh, the sleep apnea. So that's uh, a, an important mode of therapy to consider when, um, uh, when the person is uh, obese, especially when they have class two or three obesity, meaning body mass index greater than 35 or 40. So that, that kind of covers the full range. Um, but I would say UPPP is the one that's used most because the palate is probably the most common site of collapse or obstruction. Um, and understanding that it's a reconstructive operation are the important take-home points. And what about just transitioning to, you know, outcomes, prognosis, that sort of thing? Just overarchingly, as we finish up surgical management, how should we think about the different surgical outcomes and just what that means for patients going forward? I know, I know there's many options, but if there's a way to sum that up. Well, I'd mentioned um, earlier, uh, I think it's useful to break it down into symptoms, day-to-day -day effects, and long-term health effects. Um, if we can get the sleep apnea on sleep testing into the mild range, and by the way, I strongly urge everyone to get sleep testing after the person's recovered from surgery. Typically I do it at four months after surgery. If we can get them into the mild range or better, I don't worry about the long-term health effects. So I check off that box. And then I ask them directly about symptoms. You know, the upward sleepness scale is a commonly used measure we talked about earlier. Um, if that is no longer uh, in a problematic range uh, and other symptoms are addressed, those are the goals. Those are the realistic goals um, for surgery. You know. And for any treatment, really, you know, if we haven't achieved those goals, then we might move on to other treatments. We might move on to an additional surgery, a secondary stage surgery, or commonly I'll have a patient who's achieved partway to that, to those goals, but not quite. And now their residual sleep apnea is positional where it wasn't before. So I might recommend positional therapy to complement the surgery or an oral appliance device to complement the surgery or a retrial of CPAP because they might now tolerate CPAP where they didn't before because the sleep apnea is not as bad, or weight loss, or any of the other treatments. So, so one of the um, important concepts in treating sleep apnea is it doesn't have to be isolated to one treatment option. You can combine treatment options. In fact, it's very common that we do that. And, and that requires us interfacing also with our colleagues in different subspecialties who also treat sleep apnea. And part of what makes this field uh, a lot of fun and exciting to work in, to learn from our colleagues and to complement what they can do with what we can do. And you mentioned getting a post-operative sleep study done at four months. Any other uh, pearls surrounding follow-up for these patients? Acutely after surgery, of course, monitoring for side effects and adverse effects and managing those. Uh, Mid-range, I say four months for the sleep test, just to give time for them to completely recover from the surgery and time to reestablish their sleep patterns. So we're trying to assess how they're going to be in the longer term. Um, as a side note, a lot of people wonder if the effect of surgery is due to weight loss. The answer to that question is no. Um, patients do lose weight after pharyngeal surgery because it hurts so much in the short term. They pretty much all gain it back as soon as they start eating. And that's borne out in, in, in uh, 
many, many studies that patients go back to their baseline weight and, and the treatment effects not due to weight loss. Uh, so part of doing it at four months is not to exaggerate the treatment effect because of some residual um, uh, weight loss that hasn't uh, reached its new plateau. Um, and then long-term is, you know, assessing for recurrence of sleep apnea, recurrence of symptoms, or, um, or further treatment if, if that's needed. You know, some people will follow their patients every year. Um, I, in my practice, I leave that to the sleep medicine colleagues with whom I work very closely. Uh, and, and if the patient has worsening of symptoms, they might reconsult me to um, reassess for further surgery, or else they might try some of these other therapies uh, down the line if, if, if they occur. It's important for patients to understand to be um, cognizant that their symptoms may reoccur. And so um, if that happens, that they should bring themselves to medical attention. Well, Dr. Weaver, I think that pretty much wraps up all the questions I had. Was there anything else that you had wanted to mention or things that we didn't cover that you think is worthwhile? John, there's one last pearl that I think is important to share with your audience, and that is that sleep surgery is a lot of fun and certainly a subspecialty worthy of any trainee's consideration. All right. Well, Dr. Weaver, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me, John. All right, now I'll transition to the summary portion of the podcast. So obstructive sleep apnea in adults is a sleep disorder characterized by periodic, complete, or partial upper airway obstruction during sleep that causes intermittent apneas, hypopneas, or both, despite ongoing respiratory effort. Symptomatically, patients will commonly present with snoring, which can be either endorsed by saying that there's choking or gasping during sleep, recurrent awakenings, or just saying that there's a lot of daytime sleepiness, where they just feel like their sleep is unrefreshing. Sleep apnea is very important in terms of patients' long-term health. There's multiple comorbidities and long-term sequelae associated with obstructive sleep apnea. On physical exam, it's important to get an idea of things like obesity, neck circumference, but also patients' anatomy. Um, get an idea of things like their Friedman staging, which uses their tonsil size, modified malampati, or their tongue position, as well as their BMI things like that to help you get an idea of what's the patient's anatomy and where's the level of obstruction. In terms of treatment for sleep apnea, really positive airway pressure is the gold standard treatment. But bearing in mind that adherence to positive airway pressure is very low oftentimes. And for that reason, surgical management of sleep apnea is something that is significantly studied and is obviously relevant to otolaryngology. There's numerous procedures that can be done, everything from addressing nasal surgery to help tolerance of sleep apnea to the UPPP or global airway procedures such as maxillomandibular advancement or hypoglossal nerve stimulators. And lastly, just keep in mind that the treatment of sleep apnea in adults is a very multimodality, holistic approach where we might offer surgical therapy to somebody and that treatment may not cure their sleep apnea, but instead it might enable them to tolerate positive airway pressure. Alternatively, you might do a surgery and it might be a multiple stage procedure. And the whole goal is to eventually get them into the mild range where their risk of long-term cardiovascular sequelae is significantly mitigated. All right. Well, that'll wrap things up for the summary. I'll transition to the question portion of the podcast. Well, I'll ask a question, pause for a couple seconds to let you think about the answer and then give the answer. So first question of the day, what is the definition of obstructive sleep apnea? So obstructive sleep apnea is a sleep disorder characterized by periodic, complete, or partial upper airway obstruction during sleep, causing intermittent apneas, hypopneas, or both, despite ongoing respiratory effort. Second question, generally speaking, what polysomnogram findings suggest treatment is warranted? Whether a polysomnogram or a home sleep study, in patients with an AHI greater than or equal to 5 in a symptomatic patient or greater than or equal to 15 in an asymptomatic patient meets the criteria for obstructive sleep apnea and, and warrants treatment. Keep in mind that in adults, the severity ranges go from 5 to 15 for your AHI is considered mild, moderate is 15 to 30, and severe is greater than 30. Third question, what does the Friedman staging system assess? The Friedman staging system is used as a clinical predictor of which patients might have successful postoperative outcomes from a UPPP. 
or even just a tonsillectomy potentially. And what it takes into account is the patient's non-extended tongue position or the modified balanpati tongue position, the tonsil size, and patient's BMI, where the more favorable the tongue position, the lower the BMI, and the larger the tonsil size portends a greater likelihood of surgical success. And last question, what surgical intervention has been shown to improve CPAP tolerance but does not significantly alter patient's AHI? This procedure is, of course, the septoplasty and bilateral turbinoplasty, inferior turbinoplasty, or really just this whole idea of nasal surgery. Nasal surgery is not necessarily going to lower patients' AHI, but it may improve their ability to tolerate positive airway pressure. Well, that'll wrap things up for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.